You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and I have a wonderful guest that I'm going to introduce you to, and I'm thrilled to, to meet and say hello to Declan O'Rourke, who is in Canvara in County Galway, um, where I always have a love for anything in County Galway. Declan, thanks a million for coming along, first of all. My pleasure, Alison. Thank you for having me on. This is my first time, as far as I know, ever on anything in Canada. Well, it won't be the last hope. We hope not. No, we're opening the the gates now. So Dublin-born, Australian, kind of raised, and then you came to settle in Galway. As I would say, God's own country. I'm originally East Galway myself, so I love that part oh, of the right. country. Yeah. Um, Dublin-born, what brought you to Australia, first of all? Well, late 80s, there was... Um, you know, that big recession in Ireland and there were there were ads in the papers Australia was looking for I, I suppose young people with trades and families to come out and they did it periodically throughout you know, throughout their history and a call on for and so um my parents just thought, well, it's a chance to get a, a leg up and bring the kids somewhere nice to grow up, I suppose. So, 1987, we emigrated out to Melbourne. My mum had an older brother there. He'd been there for 27 years at that time. He's over 55 or so years there now or something, or close to that. And, um, and we stayed for about four years. It was a very formative time for me. We were there from, um, I think, well, I, I got there and went into Grade five, they call it in school, fifth class. I don't know what they call it in Canada, but one year before the end of primary. And I stayed there. We were there for almost four years, so into high school. So very formative time. And I'd come from a Christian brothers all boys school in Dublin to mixed schools in Australia in a summary country and just much more liberating for a kid I think you know and freedom and and um, and then we went back and I went back to the Christian Brothers and I was made make my confirmation three years later so. but what I'm loving about this for what age were you when, when you went to Australia 10 10 or 11 thereabouts ok because we emigrated in 88 and my okay. daughters were 6 and 9 right so very similar yeah story yes. yeah we didn't come back Right, yeah, well, there you go. We're, we're, we're the, the plan A and plan B here, example no. A and B. And what, what I'm, I'm delighted to, in a way to, to hear is your perceptions as how that was so formative for you because, you know, you went out and you went have come back so you've seen the influence that that time had, whereas for my kids, life continued on. They don't um, know any difference, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, and it was out there. I understand that uh, someone picked up on your potential in the music, your your talent. Yeah, same trip actually. My parents were um, it was we were a couple of years in. It was probably not long before we came home. Um, my mother was very homesick, and long story short, but or maybe a short story long, um, they were having some trouble, and they got some marriage counselling. And we we went to visit some. There were some people we were told out there who were from the same street as us in in Dublin, 
their daughter or something, and they were similar age to my parents, so we became friends with them. And but the the girl up the road, she had an uncle who was a parish priest way up out in Bush, kind of. It was in this little town, or outside of this little town called Kyabram, up on the Murray River, the border between two states, you know. Very picturesque place, very barren and kind of beautiful, very typical Australian countryside. And we just spent a weekend there, and um, thankfully the counselling worked. My parents made their way through it, but one of the nice little byproducts of that, uh, while we were there for the weekend, we were in this big big house and um, I would go wandering around and I found these couple of guitars in a room and I'd kind of hide in there and just pick it up and fantasize about playing the guitar or, you know just holding it and pushing the strings or whatever didn't know what I was doing and I remember being seen by somebody through the door and but they just walked on and when we were leaving a couple of days later it was this young priest like a deacon I suppose he was training to be a priest and we were just gotten in the car and we were about to take off and he ran out after us and he stopped the car and said, I think I have something to belong to you. And he gave me the guitar. Actually, that's it there on the wall, this one. And it was my 13th birthday, it happened to be. So it was almost like a coming of age thing, a bar mitzvah thing or something as well, I don't know. And it was, a bit, I suppose it was a life-changing moment, you know, because I, I never looked back from there. So Declan... Experiencing different cultures, and particularly Australia, where uh, there would have been a large immigrant community at that age, must have had a huge impact on you also that when you came back to Dublin, you would have been very different than your classmates. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I came back and I came back like out of a time warp or some different fashion zone and everything, you know, the, what I was wearing and my my hairstyle and everything. Even just as a 12, 13-year-old, I think I was 13, um, was wild compared to what the other kids were doing. In fact, I came home and I was wearing these, they called them bubblegum jeans for the fashion in Australia at the time. They were basically like painted onto you. And the kids in school there were, flares were back in fashion. It was the complete opposite. It was this big trend in Dublin. And it just, and I looked like a, I was out of place to come back uh, in the middle of summer, so it was very dark and everything as well. And, you know, so um, there was lots of slagging. And it was actually probably a tough re-entry, you know, because you're at that age, back into an all-boys school. You had your your groups and your bullies and all that. And there was, I encountered a little bit of trouble. But I, I managed, because I'd done it before, and I was able to kind of look after myself. And, you know, I was I was okay. But it was... I didn't want to be back there at the time. I didn't want to move home. And in fact, um, I ended up, as soon as I finished school, I went back to Australia again for another few years. Um, what I find interesting in that is that a lot of times we form friendships for life at secondary school level. Yeah. And your experience was you arrived back in secondary school had started. So you arrived in and people already had established the relationships. So, um, trying Very to. Cool. I'm still friends with, I'm still in touch with some people who I was in school with in Australia before I came home at that age. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and as you say, it can be very difficult then trying to break back in because people have already established the relationships. 
would you say? The other very big thing, right. the other very big thing, Austin, if, if you don't mind me, sorry yeah. for interrupting. The other great thing about schools out there, apart from the sun and the the weather, was was a more outdoors country for kids. It was good and sport, lots of sport and that. But you could, they had great music programs and that in school. They had music rooms. You could go, like kids could go in on their lunch break. I'm talking about kids that were interested in music. Now, not picking up a tin whistle or something formal that they teach you in school. Drum kits, pianos, mm. electric guitars and amps, anything you wanted. And we had free reign at that. When I come home, the other thing that was, because I was very much interested in music and art, that was all I was interested in as a kid. And um, when we came back, and a year after I came back, we had to pick our subjects for for going into the Leaving Cert end of school. And the first two things I picked were music and art. And I picked two other things that I might like, I think chemistry and biology or something. And when I came back after the summer, I was pulled aside and told, well, you're the only kid in the whole school who picked music, so there will be no music class. Where I grew up was really colourful place, beautiful people and that, but um, very underprivileged kind of in, in terms of funding. And that was Bally Firm in Dublin and a bit neglected. So that was a real shame. And, and I was also told that art was only for slow learners. So I wasn't allowed to do art. And it was, that was very difficult. And I had to just pick some random subjects then because I, and I really lost interest after that, you know. And when you said that, Declan, of course, you're talking now in the early 80s. We're not talking that long ago. That's true. No, yeah. In fact, early 90s it was, yeah. Right, right. Because oftentimes, you know, what you've just said, people would say, well, that was the 50s or that was the 40s, 50s or 60s. But it's, it's still rel- it was relatively recent. It was relatively recent now. Thankfully, I believe they're, they've much improved facilities and programs there now, which I'm very yeah. happy to hear, you know. A lot of people work very hard for it, but you know, you get it everywhere, it's just disparity in different communities. and yeah. So, given that this was there deep down, at what point did you figure that this was where you were going to spend your life or where you wanted to spend your life? Yeah, not long after we got home. And I, I suppose because I didn't have it in school, I found some like-minded kids in the community where we were living. And it was a fairly rough part of Bally Farm too. It was... Um, we had I had grown up in in this in what they call old Bally Farm. It was populated from back actually in the the forties or fifties, but they had these new housing estates where it was the only place we could get a house when we came home and it was pretty rough. You opened our front door and there was the first thing you saw was the back wall of a prison thirty foot high and a lot of undeveloped land around and music was a nice escape, you know. Uh, there were very few kids around as well who were into the kind of music I was into. I was into kind of rock music and a bit of traditional Irish music and kind of advanced stuff, you know, blues and flamenco. And and uh, But I found some great kids who were my own age and, and we formed little bands, you know. And um, it was like our secret little world in a way, you know. And there was a great priest nearby, another priest, who uh, built a shed for us and allowed us to. We had free access to come and go and jam in there every day. And it was absolutely heaven to us, you know. 
and we we um that was probably when I knew I this is what I want to do. This is definitely what I want to do. It was in that shed actually. The man only died last year uh, during lockdown, but um, it was it was in that shed where I actually discovered the concept of songwriting. Even we auditioned a fellow one time from came out from town and um, from the city, you know, out to we we were auditioning him as a singer. And we jammed our favorite songs all day. And at the end of the day, he said, uh, we're just about to pack up. And he said, why don't we try one of my songs? And we were all kind of looking at him funny, saying, what are, what are you talking about your song? You can't, you don't just have songs, you know. And it was, it was, we started jamming with a song straight away. And it felt really free and it was very explosive. And I went home that night and started trying to write songs and never stopped since. That was it, you know, got the book. So who at that time in Dublin would have been on the scene that would have influenced you? What groups were on the on the circuit? I remember Tin Lizzy was a big thing. Uh, if They were probably the Irish band that were relevant to what we were doing. Right. Because we were into... The, it was the era of guitar solos and, you know, I was into Neil Young and Crazy Horse, that kind of thing. And uh, I was discovering, you know, 15 or 16 at this stage, discovering Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and all these kind of... Um, and, and at the same time, traditional Irish music at the same time was opening up to me, the really advanced end of it, you know, not not necessarily, you know, the stuff that people might dance to or whatever, really intricate music, the likes of Planksty, mm-hmm. Paul Brady and Andy Irwin. Paul Brady was a huge influence on my guitar playing very advanced guitar player and brilliant singer and um, that all got into the kind of melting pot of my influences you know so the first song you ever wrote do you still have it I still yeah the still the first one that I ever finished yes I still uh, have it not the one you finished the, <laughs> the one you <laughs> the one you have finished oh, the, 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 the very first one I tried I doubt uh, that God, there was a million dollars. <laughs> so the, the first one I finished was called Fall with the Rain. I think it was a typically early attempt, kind of angsty, you know. Yeah. Right. And it, from something like that, how do you progress? Where, where did you... Okay, let's say, what was the first of your compositions that you performed in public? Oh, well, that's a very, very good question, and we take a big leap for that because there was years of trying in the wilderness and in the quiet and the the bedroom and what have you, and, you know, I had moved back to Australia by that stage uh, when I was 19. My voice had dropped when I was a teenager, and I gave up any hopes of being a singer myself. Didn't know what to do with it. But I had discovered this idea of songwriting. I just figured I'd find somebody along the way or a band or a singer, you know. And I went all the way into my early 20s and I kept writing and writing. I just seemed to enjoy it. Felt I was getting better at it. But out in Australia, I was kind of isolated in terms of I hadn't found a community of people who played original music. And... um, uh, I, I was around 23, 24, and I decided to come home and have a go at music. You know, I wanted to come back again. 
And um, I, I read somewhere along the way, actually, many years later, that Nietzsche said, you've, you've got to be doing anything for 10 years before you produce something of value. And it nearly worked out perfectly to be 10 years for me by the time I found my way onto stage. I come home from Australia again. It was just the tournament, the millennium. And missing family, all my family, my entire family were at home. And um, within about two weeks, I discovered that uh, some, somebody told me about an open mic night in town where you could go and sing your songs. And I went in there and um, I was quite nervous about it. And I got up on stage and sang two songs. You had to either pay a pound to watch or you could play and not pay. And that was extra incentive to, you know, to get up because I didn't have much in my pockets. And um, I got up and played two songs and I was kind of nervous but really exhilarated by the experience. My leg was shaking the whole time. And I got down and I was just like, oh, my God, that was so good. And I ended up, I had a little notebook, and I, every time I played somewhere that year, that was January, every time I played somewhere, I wrote it into the book. And I counted up later, 140 times I played that year, somewhere around town. And I started to get, you know, support slots. And I was meeting all these people who were, you know, the, the first night I arrived into one of these things, there was... Damien Rice was there, Glenn Hansard, Damien Dempsey, Chema Hayes, all these people in the same room. You know, it was, a, it was a huge... I had just landed exactly where I needed to be at the right time and got friendly with all these people and became a part of the scene, you know? So, Declan, the first time you sang one of yours was at an open mic where you didn't have to pay. Do you remember yeah, the yeah. first night? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? It is a nice way, lovely way. <laughs> I didn't have to pay to listen to me. <laughs> you remember the first night you got paid? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, first night I got paid was probably... Uh, I'd have been opening a show for... Paddy Casey or or Gemma Hayes, maybe. Right. Yeah. That was, yeah. I mean, money didn't really matter, and there were small amounts, I'd say, but, um, I, and I, I say that, you know, uh, because it's true, but it was very generous of them at the same time, you know. And I asked the question more from the point of view that it's, it's crossing a line from where yeah. you, it, it puts you on the step towards yeah. saying this is what I have been working towards and even though it might only be a few quid it was that it was well it was it's interesting you asked that yeah and it's a, it's a good point I didn't notice it I think for me it was much more of a blurred line that faded in because the money was so insignificant at first and I was I was somebody who had been working for a living for a number of years at that point so I was I was used to getting a weekly wage, and and um, it, it was a long time before I'd start counting the beans with any expectation, I'd say. It was just a thrill, actually. It was the thrill of having people come to see you. And, you know, like I, I was trying to go through them, but the first big gig I had was Whelan's in Dublin. But my abiding memory of that was not that 
I made any money or sold tickets, but it was that it was a full room. And I know Paul Brady was in the audience. It was a massive hero of mine all, all my, my career, you know, or learning as a player. So they're, they're the kind of things that excited me, you know. Declan, to be honest, the answer is I still haven't been paid. Thanks for <laughs> <what I'm getting. laughs> but, what, but what you're saying is it's still it's still insignificant. <laughs> but so um, you had uh, while while you were on that circuit and and those in the industry and and you were developing a following, um, Galileo put you into a different league. It, yes, it did. Yeah, big time. It definitely. It definitely opened the door somehow. Now, the timing of it was when I was actually trying to open the door at the same time. So it literally came with my first record. Um, but it was a very interesting thing because I was hearing, at the time I was playing guitar for somebody, Paddy Casey, great friend of mine, who was the biggest thing on the scene in Ireland at that time. And I was I was opening the shows and then I was playing guitar for him on stage all around the country and I was building nice momentum and I had a nice following. Um, and then I, I told him I was leaving the band, I was going to make my record and he said, well, best of luck to you, it was great. And he had been purposely saying, play with me until your thing takes off. So it's very generous and... and um, while I was in the studio recording, the, making the record, and Galileo was... Sorry, I'll go back because I, I was started another point a minute ago. While I was playing with Paddy, I was getting an, I was getting an insight into what you had to do with the other things because I'd go to radio stations with him. We were doing TV shows, and I'd sometimes be in on meetings with his record company people and that, and really getting us peeked through the door, you know? And I kept hearing this thing. People were saying, you have to have three singles. You have to have three songs that would get on radio. And so I tried to tick those boxes and I wrote songs that I felt were upbeat and short and what have you. And they they were okay songs. They did it okay for me. They were probably the three songs on the record that were least actually relevant to my life. They were just purposeful, functional, and they felt good and I enjoyed writing them. But then you had these outside runners like Galileo, which were completely was for my own amusement. I didn't think anybody would be interested in that song. It was a throwback to another era. It, it, it was reminded me of the songs that fascinated me, the likes of Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, the ones that you, you couldn't even tell where they had started the lyric. You know, it was like a circular thing, very advanced concepts and nice escapism and and it was a kind of a tribute to that but to entertain myself and um, but again during the making of the record I got a call to go and play on an outside broadcast uh, which was a radio show and it was going to be broadcast live from a venue as opposed to the guy's normal studio Tom Dunn was his name and and um he was present at that, but actually, when I played, because I was an unknown guy to him, he went outside and had a chat to somebody, and I played my 20 minutes, and he came back in, 
And apparently he said the next day his switchboard was jammed with people asking, what was that song that guy played last night? And he went and listened back to it and said, oh, my God, this is a great song. Blown it. And he started playing it off the air every night. And the record still wasn't finished at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we had our, our, our single chosen for us by the public without, you know, accidentally. And I'm so glad that happened because, you know, if we'd have went with what the record company picked or something, it would have been probably one of the other ones. And it mightn't have got much attention or worse still, I'd be remembered for that one for years as my entrance song as opposed to people knowing me for this one, which I'm, I never get tired singing, you know. We're going to listen to it and uh, we'll be back after. And this is Declan O'Rourke and Galileo and you're listening to our Radio Candidate on the Bro. That should be long enough of a straight line for me to know where to cut. Lovely. <laughs> Welcome back. And uh, we're chatting with Declan O'Rourke, and that was Declan performing Galileo. Um, Declan, um, that has been recorded by numerous artists. I have to admit, the first time I heard the song was by the Celtic tenors, Matt, Matt Gilsman. But numerous have done so. Very good. Yeah, it's, it's got some nice... Um, nice... Um, help along the way and you know they kind of take on their own life sometimes you know it's been covered probably 10 or 15 times by you know professional artists anyway and um that's always been great for me it's it's really lovely to hear you know um i went to see josh groban perform in madison square gardens one time which was that was probably the biggest cover it had and um it was, you know, a very interesting experience, actually. I was going to say, you would probably have to pinch yourself at, did you, at that. He, he sang it very well, but it was, it was surreal for me because, yeah. uh, you know, you get this kind of um, feeling. I've tried, I tried to describe it to someone one time. The best way I could describe it was imagining what somebody's like when their child reaches the age of they're about to leave home. And you're kind of half torn between you want them to do well in the world and you're kind of encouraging them out the door, but half of you doesn't want to let them go because they're yours. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the best way I could describe how I felt. <laughs> and it must be, I know with, with your other children, because every song is a child. Um, and, and you're trying to let them all go. And at the same time, you want to keep them to yourself. It, it, of its nature, it's a, a conflict. Yes, exactly. I'm going to move us along to the Famine Chronicles. And, and, and I know I'm jumping quite a bit in between. Uh, and we're, we're okay. skim, skimming over. But the Famine uh, Chronicles, you something worked on about, about two, two or three years ago at this stage. Um a tremendous piece of work that uh, chronicles the uh, journey of the Irish through the famine and many of them end up coming to Canada through Grosseal and making a new life there. Tell me about how you got involved in that because you said earlier on, first of all, when you were at school you wanted to do um, music and art. 
and here you're into history. Yeah, yeah, interesting, isn't it? I wasn't, uh, well, that's a very good point in itself because, you know, in history in school, we didn't learn really about the famine. It was a, it was like a footnote in, in in the history books. Very, very little. I, my memory of what I learned about at school was almost non-existent, you know. And um, maybe around 99, 2000, 2000 or so, my mother was researching family history. Her her dad, my granddad, was from Kimbara, where I live now. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Sorry, Austin. And um, she, she found this Barrett cert, and on it was written, um, place of birth, the workhouse in Gort. And we were all, of course, very intrigued what that meant. He kind of had a mysterious past anyway, didn't talk about his childhood much and and had never come back to Gimbara after he left it as a young man, even though he painted it his whole life. It's a whole a whole other story, very fascinating. But um, for another day's work, perhaps. But anyway, I was intrigued. What What is a workhouse? What does this mean, you know? And and I knew it was something mysterious, some kind of institution. And I stumbled upon a book uh, uh, in, a, in a bargain bin in Eason's, our biggest bookshop in O'Connell Street in Dublin, not long after. And it was literally called The Workhouses of Ireland. I think it was like a pound for a copy. And so I picked it up. I got on the bus on the way home. I was very excited. Sat upstairs and I opened the first page. And it said, and instantly I realised the workhouses were all uh, from the famine times. Now, they were part of a, a wave and a copy of the English workhouse system around the times of Dickens and that the new sweeping reforms, the first, first kind of attempts at a system of social security and, you know, looking after the poor, basically. And they copied it into Ireland, but did it slightly differently. But... Anyway, <clears throat> halfway down that same page, there was a tiny little paragraph, three lines. He said, the man who walked home, the man who carried his wife home from the workhouse, mile after weary mile, and was found the next morning in their little cottage, dead, with his wife's feet held to his chest, as if he'd been trying to warm them. And it was just the most the most mind-blown thing I'd ever read, you know. Uh, it was so so moving, so powerful and universal. I, it took me years to figure out the the mixture of emotions that were, you know, that I initially felt. And I realized that there was a lot of beauty in it as well. You know, it was... It was... The, the, the power of somebody being that, that gesture your own last energy and breath to give that to someone else like that. I thought that's something we all aspire to as human beings. There's nothing, nobody can not hear that story, can hear that story and not be moved by it. I thought it was so universal and powerful in that way. And also along the way I learned personally, I learned through that story what empathy is. And it's that you we experience empathy by placing ourselves in the shoes of others, by imagining 
that's my mother, my father, my brothers and sisters. Until we do that, we don't. It's a two-dimensional thing. You don't really relate to it until you, until you imagine yourself, and, and then it's your own experience paints the picture, and it becomes very powerful. Uh, of course, I was still a young writer at that point. It was a few years before my first album even came out. There's no sign of Galileo or anything. And um, but I, I instantly, I was soaking up. I, I was, you know, really, really involved in my songwriting, and I instantly wanted to put that in a song. I thought, why doesn't everybody know this? Why didn't we learn this in school? Why, do, why hasn't everybody in Ireland heard this story? It's so powerful, even beyond Ireland, you know. And we can learn by this. And so I kept going through the book to find more about these people. And by the time I got to the back of the book, when I found the rest of the story, I had underlined so many more passages and powerful moving parts and pieces. And I thought that one song could never do this justice. It really, it's, it's a subject that's been so badly neglected. And there's so much material there worthy of song that you'd have to. And I knew it was going to take me a long time because I knew I'd have to keep, you know, researching, make sure I didn't miss very important uh, stories and 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 um, and to be fair to the story and try and uh, be subjective about it, you know. And it took me until, you know, I had made five other albums by the time I finished writing that record. It took me 17 years. And I eventually had, uh, my initial idea was to, was to maybe write 15 or 20 songs and pick the best 10. By the end, I think I'd written 14 and I put 13 of them on the album. And one went on another album the year before because it was with an orchestra. And, and I thought, well, I'll keep that one separate, you know. But, um, and then, you know, the, the album ends with emigration. It was almost, in one sense, a little bit of it in a linear fashion, chronologically. And it ends with immigration, which is ultimately both the the end of the story, but it's also the, the, the key to our survival. You know, we survived despite the, the massive losses and the, the massive mortality. And um, Canada featured very, very heavily. The last song is called The Great St. Lawrence River. And it was, a, a, you know, a kind of a charting of, of a voyage through all the stops from Ireland through England, down through Cove and across up through the ice at the mouth of the river and grow seal, of course. And ultimately, some of them, a lot of the people were trying to get to what they foresaw or perceived as the promised land of America. America, during 1847, at one point, had literally closed its ports to the immigrants coming in because they were, you know, they said they were clogging up the slums and the cities. And there was a... Uh, famous, what he was called, a philanthropist. You could think of other names for a person who said this, but his name was Nathaniel Hawthorne. I think he was a politician as well. He described the Irish in New York as maggots in the cheese. 
you know, so it was, there was a whole lot of horrible feeling towards these people coming in. Who were coming in, there was, and many times a lot of them would get on the ships healthy, well, relatively healthy, free of disease. And if somebody was carrying typhus or cholera or God, God knows what, by the time it got to the other side, half the ship could be, you know, sick and contaminated. And uh, so there was a race during that that winter to get up through the mouth of the Great St. Lawrence River before the ice froze froze it over. And um, it was kind of the epic end of the, of the record. I'm very proud of that song. It was nominated for a uh, BBC Folk Award, actually, 2018. And um, of course, the the whole recognition of the, the contribution to Canada. There's tremendous work going on in Toronto at the moment to acknowledge um, in Grasset Park and in Ireland Park to acknowledge the health workers who gave their lives um, because the story of the Irish arriving, where you had twenty thousand, the population of Toronto, twenty thousand and thirty-eight thousand Irish arrived. You know that when people talk in terms of of um, refugees at the moment, some it's like two million arriving in Dublin. I know. It's, really, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yes. It is. And they welcomed them with open arms. They were brilliant. They were indeed. We'll yeah. share that with the listener here, that wonderful track, uh, and uh, come back and talk about the new album. Welcome back. You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad. And that was Declan O'Rourke from his Chronicles of the Famine. Declan has just launched a new album, Arrivals. And uh, it is the album of the week on RTE. And it's available in all good locations. You can get it on Spotify. You can probably get it directly. And I would recommend you go to Declan's website. Because when you go to somebody's website, they actually get what you pay for it. Whereas when you go to some of these streaming services, they might only get a penny out of the tracks or a fraction. So I would strongly recommend you go to Declan's own website, and we'll share the details of that again with you before we finish up. Declan, well, again, congratulations on the new album, and congratulations on Album of the Week as well for RTE. Thank you so much, Austin. Delighted. So it's a big week, getting that out there into the virtual world. Uh, a little bit of the history of this album. Yeah, so uh, I, I made this record almost two years ago. It it predates the pandemic actually in its in its writing and its recording, and it's been a long gestation because we did a lot of playing, kick the can down the road, figuring out you know when when this whole thing happened to the world, um, you know. No, no more than anybody in any business, we had to really ask some big questions and could we go ahead with this or how was best to tackle it. And but you don't want to let things go stale either. And um, ultimately, my team and I felt that actually it felt, you know, perhaps even more relevant during this time. And um, we took the, the the gamble and went with it. But um, I, I recorded it uh, in London. It was produced by a friend of mine or somebody I've become friendly with over the years, Paul Weller. And it was the first time I ever worked with a producer, actually. 
Um, and it's a kind of quite stripped down affair. It's my seventh album. And I'm very pleased with, with how it turned out and very proud of it. So when you say like it's two years, um, I know when something hits the shelves and it comes out nicely wrapped in cellophane and everything else and there's 12 or 13 tracks on it and you play it, it takes 45 minutes to an hour. So it sounds all very simple, but that 45 minutes to an hour is two to three years' work. Well, in a sense, maybe, yes, and can be. I mean, the Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine, as we know, I've mentioned earlier, was 17 years. It was, you know, this this record, Rivals, took a lot less. And essentially, it, it was caught in the gears is what it was with lockdown and that. The actual making of the record itself, I always record fairly fast. And um, we go for performances and try to treat it as as a performance and the purity of that. And we we made it over six days. It was only six days spent in the studio recording it. We did it in two groups of three over the summer of 2019. In fact, April 15th was the first day I went into the studio. So it's almost two years to the day since we started it. And it was finished by August and that was even sparing when you consider that it was only six days recording. But, um, you know, it took until probably December, by December or January, by the time you've actually sent your artwork and all the lyrics and what have you off to the manufacturers. Right. Um, so there is an awful, it's a, it's a very involved process. But So the Declan O'Rourke that started out, um, at an open mic, not paying to sing. <laughs> this is about the, the Declan O'Rourke of today. Uh, how do you see yourself now? Uh, that's a good question. It's a good question. I, I, well, I see myself as as an artist. I don't think I I ever really maybe fully believed that or said it in, until recent years and um, I don't know why I don't know why that is because this is what I've been doing for so long but maybe I finally believed that I earned it or something in recent times um, and funnily enough you know this this whole project was almost a charting and, and a manifestation in a way of of that belief, but also something else happening in, in in that I was kind of letting go at the same time. I reached a point recently where my wife and I were starting a family, and I was very excited about that. And I, I really felt I had to, to, that to do that properly, I had to take a good look and how I was running my career, because I was it was it was all consuming, had been for some time, but more and more so because of how the industry has changed and um, how much I was how much time I was putting in. And from 2015 to say 2015, 16, 17, 18, 
I made four records in a row and released them myself. I was managing myself. And the way, the way you've heard a lot of controversy, I'm sure, about, you've mentioned it there yourself, about how little artists get paid from streaming and things like that. It's so minute. And I, I heard a, a, a fairly amazing figure recently that there are less than seven or 800 artists in music in the entire world who earn a substantial living from music through streaming. Mm-hmm. But earn, you know, enough to, to, to live on and sustain. And that's including all the biggest artists in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very, very small amount. And therefore, that's, that's testament to how difficult it has become for an artist to if you just try and imagine trying to sustain what you do at a level where you're maintaining quality and putting it out to the highest level you can, what you feel is worthy of it, and what what an audience will expect of an artist who's been around for a while. So I felt like I was reaching a point where it was just a little bit of ever-decreasing returns and uh, and that it was unsustainable at that level while trying to maintain a balanced, healthy lifestyle and approach to family. And so I came to a point, to be honest, Austin, where I actually considered stopping and maybe doing something else, maybe looking after trees or something, you know, something mm-hmm. that would be gratifying mm-hmm. and that would pay, pay the wages or whatever. And... Um, and that was literally during the making of this record. And the songs became a kind of a charting of me trying to figure that out and how to figure out what I really wanted from life. At this point in time, a lot of my friends said reaching your 40s is like hitting the plateau. You don't really care what people think as much anymore. You know what you want. It's a bit more peaceful. I certainly find that to be true. And I think it helped me to cast off those other things and to just get to the heart of what I wanted. Uh, But the songs were definitely a vehicle that helped me to figure that out. And um, I feel like it's manifested itself in a way because I I sat down when I made that decision to, to continue I said, I'm going to have to do it differently or not do it at all. So I, I opened the drawer and I took out all the business cards I'd stuffed into it over years and years. I said, right, let's do this now. I sorted them into piles. I said, I'm going to get myself a good manager. I'd managed myself for the last four years. I'm going to get a, a proper record label. I, I'd been fiercely independent for over 10 years. I'm going to get an international touring agent. Uh, I'm going to do this right, and um, and I, I decided I was going to kind of let go and let other people do the work, you know, put it into the right hands of people who know how to do these things. Right. And I thought that, that, that they would come, of course, I trusted to some extent. And that was a huge step, letting go of the control. And it also involved taking on a producer for the first time in my career. 
I'd never given over control like that before. And the most amazing thing was to see that when I let go after driving relentlessly for 20 years, it started to drive itself. And I'm still sitting here going, this is very interesting, you know. And that's when arrivals. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, what's what's fascinating in that is that um, the process, you say, of first of all hitting 40, um, yeah, and you, you get over that barrier because uh, for many it is. But uh, life, life does improve life as, as it goes on. Um, Absolutely, I I feel that I'm very much, I'm very much enjoying where I am in life. But, but one of the challenges I would have to say, as an artist, that you are confronted with, relative to when you say you could go off and just do something to earn a living, when you put yourself out there, you're very dependent upon those outside of you approving of what you do, in order for you to achieve in a way that somebody else doesn't. Mm-hmm. So that the challenge of accepting that you can't please everybody and that you're going to get either negative reviews or criticism or whatever is something that those of us, yeah, we have the annual review on the job, but it's it's not it's, it's not the same thing. So from a a resilience, a human resilience perspective, you as an artist and particularly as a creative artist have to be able to withstand the negative. Or abandon it altogether, which I think is what I've done. I mean, I've always been off the mind as well, and we, we talked about it earlier with the likes of Galileo, how I didn't know that anybody would be interested in that. From there, from very early on, I've realized that you've got to please yourself first and foremost with your art or there is no point other than that but if you please yourself first and you uh, and you put that stuff out the stuff that you feel you know most strongly about then you have a chance of moving somebody else with it and if you if you take that a step further and say well I'm only going to put out the stuff that moves me and I'm not going to worry about what anybody else wants me to do. Because you'll find very quickly that everybody has different opinions anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody, the closest and nearest and dearest to you in your life will tell you. And it's because they care for you and they don't want you to be judged or stepped on or forgotten, whatever it is. They all have an agenda, whether it's out of care for you or not. But it's not necessarily the right motives. And you've got to trust your instincts. If you don't, you're lost. And I firmly believe that that is the only thing that's kept me or any other creative growing and growing and being accepted. We're going to have to wrap up with that. Time has run out. And what are we going to share off off the album? What track should we share? Well, since you're saying the word share, I say we go for the last track. It's called This Thing That We Share. And I've described it as an ode to the fragility of everything. And if anyone wants to get their hands on the album, again, go to your site preferably, and that's DecklanO'Rourke.com, and that's R-O-U-R-K-E, as the, uh, so DecklanO'Rourke.com, 
And I'm sure you'll find it elsewhere, but I would strongly recommend you get it from Declan's site. Declan, thanks a million for taking the time. Austin, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed that.